Thanks, Leslie. Hey, as we begin today, you probably have noticed uh, that we've been begun saying this, thank, uh, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And if you were here a few weeks ago, the first Sunday we did it, I explained the why. We never just want to do something for the sake of doing something. I always want to have a why behind it, and I want us all to see that. And so I know uh, some of you maybe weren't here a few weeks ago when I explained it the first time, but so I thought I'd take just a quick run at it again as we, uh, before we move into our passage today. Why do we do that? Why do we do things like uh, a call to worship where David reads and we respond? Or uh, we read the word and we respond. Here's just a few quick reasons. First of all, the pattern of worship in the Bible is one of call and response. God reaches out. He calls us. We respond. Uh, from the pattern beginning to the end, he reached out to people, called them, whether it's Abraham or Moses and Isaac and all the way through, he called them and they responded. So we do that too. We're not necessarily summoning God. He calls us and summons us to believe in him and obey and follow him through his word. And so we respond, call and response, we respond with thanks be to God. It's the pattern of the Bible. He initiates, he calls, we respond. Another one, the third one down there, it's an opportunity for us. It's always good when we can do things corporately together. We're not just a loose association of individuals. We're a body. And whenever we can do things together, whether it's the, this table here, or respond with a thanks be to God, or a responsive reading, whenever we can do stuff like that, it reminds us that, hey, I'm not just an individual here on a Sunday morning. I'm part of these people. And so we respond in one voice, like we do even in singing, thanks be to God. Another one, there's power in habits. There is power when we repeat things. Our hearts are formed by habits. Now, it can become rote, it can become dead, and we don't ever want it to become that. But by doing something repetitiously, it begins to form our hearts. Our habits do that, don't they? And finally, it's just a real moment. It's just a real moment. We're actually saying thank you to God in that moment for his word. We're responding as individuals and corporately as we just say, hey, thanks God for your word. So it actually is what we're saying. It's a thank you to God for his word, uh, which is to be applied individually and corporately as well. So we say it as an individual, but we say it all together. And finally, as we said, we never want to become dull or routine or empty. So if it ever is for you and we sing, thanks be to God, like, what are we doing? Let's check our own hearts. And let's think, wow, how am I coming to worship? Am I coming expectantly knowing that we're going to open the word and I'm going to sit under it? So again, I love to do this. I love to give why behind things because, you know, we all just do anything. Why are we doing this? Why do we just, why do we introduce this at Bethany? This, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I always want us to have some why behind it. So if that's not clear, come talk to me after today as well. and We'll talk through it. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through a journey through the gospel of Mark, a journey through the gospel of Mark with Jesus Christ. We've been traveling alongside of him as his companions, as, be, as he's begun to preach to the people, as he said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're walking alongside of him as he's begun to preach and teach and proclaim the good news of this kingdom. The kingdom of God breaking into time and space, coming to this world, his arrival and his mission that he was going to carry out to die for sinners. And today we'll see that that kingdom comes into conflict. I don't know if you caught it in there, but we've got four different conflicts today. This kingdom comes into conflict with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were called the Pharisees. Now the conflict actually began, if you remember last week, you remember the story of the paralytic being brought through the roof last week when the Pharisees questioned him. 
do you really, you really claim to forgive sins, Jesus? You're really going to claim this? Who can forgive sins but God alone, Jesus? And Jesus calmly, do you remember last week, stepped into the shadow of the cross by setting off this series of conflicts that we're going to see today by responding this way. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. Let's go back to that one. But you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He stepped into the conflict and said, I am saying I forgive sins. And here's how I will show you. How many of you love conflict? No, well, I saw some half hands. Yeah, you know. Not, there's not a lot of hands that shoot up when you say, how many of you love conflict? You know what it's like. You realize you're going to have to have that hard conversation. And, you, you know, your palms begin to sweat. Your heart's sort of like uh, racing. And you sit down. You have that initial sort of, you just chit-chat for a while. And you realize, well, i got to get to it. You're like, so uh, there was something I actually wanted to talk to you about. You've, you've been there before. You know what that's like. Nobody really likes to do that. We live in an age where healthy conflict, debate, and discussion is becoming almost impossible, isn't it? I mean, you sense that in our culture, don't you? You sense that in the political realm. You sense that on Facebook. It's almost becoming impossible. There's a danger to offend, and that is kind of the, the cardinal sin now. I'm so offended. Everybody's like, everybody's so offended. I'm so offended. I'm so offended. It's, just, it's like the mantra of our era. I'm so offended. The cardinal sin to offend. And so what's happened is, love actually has become redefined in our culture. Love has become redefined from how the Bible defines it as affirmation. And so if you love me, you won't contradict or challenge me because then I'd be offended. And that's actually a lie. I want us to hear that. That's a lie. That's actually not a good definition of love. It's not a biblical definition of love. Love's much richer than that than just being nice or affirmation. Not many love conflict, and maybe Jesus in his humanity, I'm sure he did. He wrestled with it. He was a real human. He had to make that decision like, all right, here we go. I either choose to face this conflict or I walk away. But he loved people, even if he didn't love conflict in his humanity. He loved people. And if we do too, sometimes the stakes are too high or there's a, a risk of what's going to be lost if we don't talk about it, or replaced, that that cost is too high, and so sometimes conflict is necessary, or discussion, or addressing something. I mean, Jesus knew that. When he was preaching his message in the culture of his day, I mean, he could have chosen to not be so clear when his enemies questioned him, but as we're going to see today, the gospel was at stake. When it's men and women's souls who are at stake, sometimes it's worth the risk. It's worth it. And actually a richer definition of love. The gospel was at stake. Remember from our why series? Now we'll go into those circles. The why gospel centered. Remember back on that series? The gospel was, as Jesus came in, an entirely new way of looking and relating to God for the culture of that time. Every religion of the world, including much of the Judaism of Jesus' day, practiced religion. Over here. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. 
That's what the majority of the world practice. And actually, the majority of the world religions do uh, today, when they say they're all the same, that's actually not true either. And those adherents of the different religions actually know that too. They're not the same. They say very different things. Religion says this, I obey their form accepted by God. And in fact, when we look at our conflicts today, throughout these conflicts, that's the main issue that the Pharisees had. They're missing the heart of the gospel. They're missing the heart of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, because of his work on the cross, I'm accepted by God. And therefore I obey. There's a big difference there. A huge difference there. You see, the stakes were too high for Jesus to be quiet. They were too high. This is what was at stake. He came to offer grace and freedom and, and, and mercy, as we'll see today, to a people. And, and even the Pharisees, they do get a bad rap because their intentions were good. They wanted to obey God, which is good. They wanted to be pure, which is good. They loved the Scriptures, which is good. But from this place, religion, uh, self-salvation, a self-work, I obey, therefore God accepts me because I'm good. It's totally different. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at a few more of these conflicts, as I said, with Jesus' enemies to see that they teach us that the gospel and Jesus himself, they are offensive to us. They are offensive on some level to everybody in this room, including myself, at some time. It's offensive. It's offensive to our own kind of self-driven efforts to please God. But Jesus offers us something so much better. So much better. Three gifts today we're going to see of mercy and grace. A gift of forgiveness, a gift of joy, and a gift of rest we're going to look at. So grab your outline. Have your Bibles open to Mark 2. We're going to be wrestling with some of those texts and all the way up to chapter 3 today. I hope you saw the theme. They're all conflicts. So I thought, let's just bundle all this conflict together in one big day of conflict. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at these gifts. Here's the first gift of mercy and grace is this. The forgiveness of the least that we see. The forgiveness of the least that we see. Well, the first question was, how many of you like conflict? The second one is this. How many of you like taxes? <laughs> on some level, we all know, even if it would take arm twisting for us to say it, on some level we all know that some taxes are necessary, but nobody likes paying them. Especially sometimes we see how they're used or we look at the bill that comes in the mail, the amount we have to pay, and there's abundant jokes all over if you want to just jokes about taxes and the IRS. One that I saw this week was, why don't IRS agents audit cows? Because farmers milk them dry. <laughs> I know, man. Oh, well. They're all over the place. They're cheesy, I know. But uh, we're talking today about a tax collector. His name is Levi, and there's so many jokes about taxes is because it is a hard subject, and we don't like paying taxes, and sometimes they are used poorly. In Jesus' day, it was much worse than our day. I'll tell you that. It was much worse in Jesus' day. A Jewish tax collector like Levi, we're going to talk about in a moment, he was in cahoots with Rome, who was the power at that day. So he's a Jew basically working for the enemy. At that time, who, that Rome ruled the land. And this tax collector would have a certain amount that he had to get. It was kind of like a franchise. 
He had an area, like if you were to get a McDonald's or something, or a franchise. He had his area that Rome gave him, and he had to get a certain amount that they would decide on, and he'd have to kick that up to Rome, depending on that territory. But whatever extra that he brought in, what did he get to do with? Put it in his pockets. It was his. To do with what he wanted to do with. So you could see how this, uh, this system, and think of even the lack of communication at those times, uh, nationally around the area, you could see how this would be open for the possibility of abuse, extortion. Um, and that's who Levi was, a tax collector. Add to that, uh, the passage we read says they were by the seaside. Did you catch that there? They were by the seaside. So it's possible that Levi is not only a tax collector, but of the fishing industry. So you put those two together, and Levi, this man that Jesus goes to, to call to be an apostle, who were already a group of fishermen, and here comes Levi. Do you get to see that connection? Peter's probably saying, you know, Jesus, Levi, really? We're a bunch of fishermen. He's the tax collector of the fishermen. What are you doing? Levi actually becomes Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. That's who we're talking about here this morning. Peter's thinking, what? Jesus? Levi? All these circumstances that we just mentioned make Jesus' interaction with him all the more remarkable. Those are the little clues that Scripture gives us. Jesus is teaching again by the seaside, and he walks by Levi, and he just says to him, follow me, Levi, as he's been doing. Follow me. Come. Be my disciple. Luke, in his parallel description, says this in Luke 5.28, and leaving everything, that's Levi, he, he rose and he followed him. It's remarkable. Here's Jesus proclaiming this new kingdom and calling his first 12 disciples, and he calls the least likely man in all of Israel. The least likely man, the despicable, the lowest of the low tax collectors were seen. And not only that, the lowest of the low, he taxed his buddies, fishermen, who already Jesus had called. Tax collectors were excommunicated from synagogues. Put that into perspective a little bit. And he offers him forgiveness, a new beginning to the least likely man probably in all of Israel. He offers forgiveness to the most hated man in Galilee, the one person the entire community could agree on needed the punishment of God. If there was something they could agree on, that community would have been that Levi deserves to get his, uh, what's the word, comeuppance, his, 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 the hand of God upon him. But they could agree on that. That's the person. Jesus knew this, but Jesus saw who Levi was. But he also saw who Levi would become. That's what Jesus saw. Jesus didn't just look at him and just see a class or a, a tax collector. Jesus knew through the power of his death, Levi would become a forgiven sinner, an apostle, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. That's the least likely, this despicable man. Jesus saw a person, not a category, not a class, not a color. He saw a sinner in need of saving. That's what he saw in rescuing. And he saw that this one who was despicable, hated tax collector would become an evangelist, a speaker of the name, a speaker of the way. He saw 
in Matthew. He knew he'd become forgiven. Here's what Ephesians says. Jesus knows we are his, we're his workmanship. He knows, he doesn't just look at us as a, a class or a type, but he knows he's going to do something with us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you and I, we, we, we could walk in them. Levi had no idea what was coming, but an entire new life awaited him. And Jesus was in this project of taking lives and revolutionizing them, turning them upside down. He's working on you and us to work for him. That's what he was doing with Levi here. And if you say today, as you think about this, if you say today, I tr- I've trusted Jesus, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I've trusted Jesus, and he hasn't in some radical way challenged or changed your life, I encourage you to go back and look at that first premise. To go back and look at that first claim. Levi's so overjoyed here that he, 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 he can't contain it. He throws a feast. Why? Why does, he want to th- why does he throw a feast, do you think? I think it's because those who sometimes come to Jesus Christ are the most likely to want to share him right away when they see how he's transformed their lives. And so Levi wants to gather his friends which would be, as we'll see in a minute, a bunch of sinners and tax collectors together and share Jesus, introduce them to Jesus. He becomes an evangelist immediately upon becoming a converted follower of Jesus Christ. He throws this feast to share Jesus, and that's where the conflict comes in. They're reclining at the table, eating with sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees come along and say, what what is he doing? Jesus the rabbi? uh, Carousing with this group? sitting down, reclining at table with this group? Is he validating them? Is he affirming their their sin? What's he doing? Isn't he worried that he himself is going to become unclean too? This was a disgrace for a rabbi, for Jesus to do this. It was a disgrace to eat with these sinners. But some of us as Christians can act like this too. Who is the sinner that I won't associate with? Put in quotes now, the the special sinner that I won't associate with. Who is that for you? Now, we may not stand up and espouse the the Pharisees' beliefs here, but practically now, how many of us live that way? It's a good question to ask ourselves. We become isolated from those maybe who don't know Jesus. Or, who go through our, or we go through our day without pausing and thinking about those we interact with who need this same forgiveness that we've received, that Levi received? Who's the sinner in your life you won't go near? Who's the least likely for you? I want to encourage us, as I'm encouraging myself today, I'm, I'm preaching to myself today too, to be encouraged to intentionally rearrange something in your life, whatever that may be, that will put you into contact with people who are not like you. Look for a way to serve this community, to take Jesus to where people are at. That's our job. That's our goal. That's our mission. To take Jesus to where people are at. Well, the Pharisees, they are frustrated. They are disgusted. And and Jesus, he responds. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 there. Look down at your text. He said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, they're operating out of a place of of fear, the Pharisees, uh, of religion. As we go back to this slide and self-righteousness, and a place of condemnation to Jesus. You know, I'm glad, you know, you desire to be holy, Jesus, but, you know, if it means rubbing shoulders with these people, I don't know. They didn't understand this kingdom, this king, this doctor who had come, came to heal sinners. It was the very people he came to. He said there, the physician has come. And sick people need a sinner. Righteous people don't, he said. Here's a question for us. In our church then, is our church a hospital for sinners? Or a hotel for saints? It's an interesting question, isn't it? A hospital for sinners or a hotel for saints? Now, if the question makes you uncomfortable, let's all together check our hearts for a minute. To be a hospital for sinners does not mean we condone, affirm, support, celebrate sin around here. That is not what this means. We love Jesus, don't you? I want to obey Jesus. Do you? Yes. It doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. Sin is not safe in our church. But sinners are. That's what we want to be. Sin's not safe here, but sinners are. You see the difference? How we want to treat people. What it means is that what the Pharisees missed is when a new sinner walks through these doors or in our personal life, we say, "Uh, we were expecting you because we're just like you. Sinners in need. And guess what? We have the antidote. The crucified doctor the crucified Savior. We were expecting you because we too are just like you. But guess what? You're going to find something in these walls or in my life as I interact with you that you never knew you needed, the Savior. I think we have to begin and think and and live like this. And Some of us are, but I want to encourage all of us today. And here's why. Because I think the days, the days of of American Christendom and our culture we're seeing they're, they're over it in some sense, at least in our, for our lifetime. The culture is not Christian anymore. It's really easy to see that. Really easy. But you know what? Maybe we're seeing that it never really was. And that's actually an opportunity. Because maybe underneath that Christian culture was actually a lot of religion. A lot of religion. Hey, we're just supposed to live this way and and God will bless us. And that doesn't mean that a culture shouldn't pursue godliness and we should hope for that and try to redeem culture and politics and all those fears. We should. But as Christians now on our mission, I'd rather see the reality of our culture exposed and go with Jesus on mission with what they really need. We have what people truly need. Jesus Christ. Not a mirror that affirms that, oh, 
you look just like us too, but a Savior that will change them from the inside out with real forgiveness that's offered to Levi the least. Let's be a hospital for sinners. It's our first gift, forgiveness for the least. Our second is the result of that gift. It's the joy that comes with knowing you're forgiven. The joy that comes with knowing that you're forgiven. You know, again, the Pharisees are, are, are so concerned with the letter of the law for the sake of gaining favor with God. They, they, they can't understand the feast. They can't understand the feast that Levi's throwing for Jesus. There's a second conflict. It, it probably took place um, at the very moment Jesus is feasting with Levi and this big group of sinners. Uh, Chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 18, uh, says this, second half of the verse there. uh, And they came and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They're they're frustrated again. Another conflict. You know, at this time, according to the Old Testament, there was really only one commanded fast for God's people, the Day of Atonement. They confess their sins and seek purification. But by this time, in the uh, history of God's people, they had transformed the culture so that the really godly people fasted not just once a year, twice a week. The the culture had been transformed. And you know, remember Jesus in that parable, he's, he's teaching about those who trust in their own righteousness, the verses even say. And there's this Pharisee there who's comparing him himself. Do you remember who he was comparing himself to? Nasty tax collector. You remember that? In, in Luke's Gospel, when he said this to, that, to, that, uh, to God, really, as he prayed, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know what he went on to say? Thanks, God, that I'm not like this wretch. <laughs> That's what he did. He went on to say that. Thanks, God, I'm not like this tax collector. This attitude for the Pharisees came from their false assumption that to be truly religious means that you're really somber and actually joyless. It was a joyless experience. If you think about it, how many, how many Christians are portrayed in popular media today as the great big cosmic killjoys, aren't we? <laughs> Just think of a few different movies and see how some Christians are portrayed. And you know, there are times we act like that, don't we? There's a reason sometimes it gets portrayed. It's definitely overblown and become a caricature in popular culture. But there are times we do act like that. We think that our effort to punish ourselves, make ourselves suffer, hold on to our guilt. If I just clean myself up a little bit, then God will, then he'll really use me and bless me and love me. And that was one of the ways that fasting was used at this time. My fasting will gain me favor with God. And meritoriously, he'll be swayed in my favor through my fasting. He'll bless me with the gift I've been seeking because I have been fasting. And Jesus' entire point here is that if your religion keeps the rules to get God or the gifts of God, Jesus is saying, I am the gift of God right in front of you. And they're so concerned with fasting to sway God. And Jesus' whole point is, I am the gift. And I'm right here with this group of people. And we're having a feast because the gift is here right now. I am the gift, he says. 
the groom. Mourning and sorrow. He says, it's, that's not the time for it. The gift is here on earth right now. It's time for joy. It's time for joy. They couldn't see it. And he pictures in his little story a great picture, a great wedding feast and all the guests celebrating on a wedding day. And that's what they would do in their culture. They would celebrate for sometimes a week. All together, the guests. The guests are there celebrating and the bride and groom are there for days and days having this festival, uh, festive, joyful celebration together. But here's what we know even now. We're not just guests at this wedding. We're the bride. You're the bride of Jesus Christ. You're not just some guest watching the bride and groom dance, you know, in the seat you're watching them do their first dance. We're the bride. You're the bride of Jesus Christ. What does that mean then? We should be way more joyful than just those guests there. You're in the wedding party. You're not just there watching. Oh, it's so beautiful. You're there. You're the bride of Jesus Christ. We should be the most joyful people. We have the groom. We've got the groom. We have Jesus. And we have him through this free grace and forgiveness that he offered to Levi. And Levi sees that. And Jesus isn't saying fasting isn't important. That's not what he's saying here. He expects his believers to fast in other places. He says, when you fast, don't do it this way. He's not saying obedience doesn't matter. He's just saying, joy is the response to a relationship with me, not grudging obedience like the Pharisees had picked up. Joyful, joyful obedience. I love this quote by Daniel Aiken. He said, we do well to heed Jesus' words here. A relationship with Jesus is not a solemn, boring affair. It's a celebration, a spiritual banquet, and that's what was taking place, of joy and blessing. Of course we should be holy, but we must not be somber. We should be moral, but not legalistic, and righteous, but not stern. Why? Because there's joy in Jesus. That's why. Christian, do not mourn when it's time to celebrate. We get to celebrate. And there again, you get a picture of the gospel versus religion. The gospel versus religion. He's making things new. He's showing us the way to relate through God, to God through himself, the groom. And he compares it now at what the Pharisees were doing, this kind of grudging obedience rather than joy at the, the groom standing in front of them, as trying to patch up old clothes with a, a new piece of cloth or putting new wine into old wineskins. What's the picture there? That wine that, that was brand new wine we put in a wineskin for a time to, to ferment. And what would happen? It would expand. It would expand as it sat inside that wine skin, which are made out of, I think, goat stomach linings, things like that. And if the wine skin was brittle, what would happen? It burst or crack, and all the wine would come pouring out, and you would lose it. Jesus is saying here this. I'm not just some add-on, like a patch on clothing. To whatever program you've set up in your life to make yourself feel okay. I, I, I'm not just an upgrade on your, 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 your life app, you know, version 2.0. I'm not just that. 
I'm not just an upgrade to an app to fix a few uh, glitches in your life or a, a few bugs in your life. He's saying, I'm a whole new operating system. That's what he's saying. I'm a whole new operating system here. If you think I'm just an add-on to the law, Pharisees, you've missed the point. I'm the fulfillment of that law. God's law. That's what he's saying to them in these kind of strange little word pictures. I'm not just an upgrade. Mercy and grace, forgiveness available, that's what he is. Eternal joy, that's what he is and was at that feast. The Pharisees were meant to see themselves as the old wineskin. The old wineskin, and they were. Are they not bursting at the seams here? They are bursting at the seams in this conflict. Which leads to this third gift. They couldn't see it. Some of them did. We need to see it too. The true Sabbath we all need. Because it leads into that final conflict. They just couldn't grasp the gospel. Jesus was just an add-on. As they had added on to the law. The true Sabbath we all need. These final two controversies, they're really very similar about the Sabbath. Jesus' disciples on the one plucked grain and they work on the Sabbath. And they weren't supposed to. And Jesus, the other one, is heals a man on the Sabbath. They're both these Sabbath controversies. The Sabbath was a day that was set aside for ah, rest. Something we're not very good at, is it? Some of us. You struggle to rest? Sabbath was a day set aside for rest. It was really a gift for the people. It was about restoring people, giving them a day to rest from their good work. He says in verse 27 to them of chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's telling them, the Sabbath is a gift for you. It's not something that you, you have to figure out exactly every detail and uh, to figure out if you've kept it. Feeding his disciples, as Jesus was doing, and healing a man's withered hand is exactly what the Sabbath was about. A blessing from God to us. It's exactly what the Sabbath was about. God blessing and giving us something good. But again, the Pharisees had turned it into something uh, of a list, of a work, of religion rather than a gospel. It had become something of religion. They'd added 39 different types of activity you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Again, it was, you see those, those circles coming back up. The gospel had become for them, or religion had become good advice. Hey, here's these 39 ways. You want to hear a sermon like that? Here's 39 ways you can improve your life. It's become good advice to them rather than just the good news of you've got rest that God wants you to have and available for you. Good, specific, detailed advice on how to live my life rather than the good news that Jesus has accomplished all your goodness. Trust that. When I worked in um, college ministry over the years, which I did on two different uh, times in my uh, life in ministry, two different seasons of ministry, um, and a lot of conversations um, and I can't tell you how many times I had a lot of conversations about sexual activity. Something young adults, young teens, young adults in their uh, late teens, early 20s I was working with struggled. And I would get asked many times, um, how far is too far? How far is 
too far for my girlfriend and I. Uh, you know, youth, youth pastors can relate to this too. That question kind of comes up. You know, well, can we just this? How about this? How about this, that, and the other? Well, how far is too far? When you're obeying to make sure that you're right with God, you get really concerned with detail. Really concerned with detail. And, and, and there's massive anxiety in those questions about the detail. Questions and, and view of what is obedience in this given situation. Tell me, Jeff, how close can I get with my girlfriend before I go over the line? I mean, I really got to know. I, many conversations like that. When you're operating out of religion, instead of the gospel, you become more concerned with the letter of the law than the heart behind it. So how far is too far? I mean, if that's the question, you're, not, you're asking the wrong question. Not how far is too far. Your heart is too far from God. You're asking the wrong question. If that's how you think of obedience, that's offering out of a place of religion, not the gospel. The place of gospel says, show me the line. I want to take 10 steps back from it because I love him. Not show me how close can I get before I lose his favor. That's religion versus the gospel. And so the Sabbath now was given for the good of God's people, for rest, for rejuvenation, for communion for God. That was the heart behind it. But they had turned it into something. Well, how close can I get to the line before I break the Sabbath? Do you see the difference there? See how, how radically different that is? And so if you come to Jesus through the gospel out of the love, the law functions as a way to show you how to live for the one you love. We're still bound, you and I. We have to hear this. You and I are still bound by the moral law. But not as a way to secure favor with God, as they viewed it. But as a way to, to love the God who has saved you, gospel, and love your neighbor. That's the difference. That's what Jesus wanted them to see. Jesus knew the hardness of their hearts as they wrestled, as they were about to burst with this one who, you know, seems not to care what the law says or doesn't care about the Sabbath. Does he care? Well, how does he respond to them? I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he says. He says, you're, you're working so hard and, and your work is good, but hey guys, Pharisees, what's, what's really going on underneath the work that I can give you rest from? What's that work beneath your work, Pharisees? He asks us that too. What's that work beneath all our, your striving? Is it over here? Or is it over here? What's that work beneath the work? He says to them, your empty religion, your empty self-actualization, your own self-realization, your own self-salvation, your own good advice, whatever you want to call it. And he says, come, have real gospel rest. Have real gospel rest. Gospel Sabbath. It's the good news. And this treatment of the Sabbath it infuriated them, and they were, what's the word? Offended. <laughs> they were offended. We're so offended. We're so offended, Jesus. We're so offended, Jesus. How do we know? Here's how the passage finishes. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's how we know. 
That's how we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense. Because the very first thing they wanted to do when they started getting it was, we got to get rid of this guy. We have got to kill this man. Destroy. And if you knew, if you, that, that pairing there, Pharisees and Herodians, yeah, those two are like oil and water. So which means they really wanted to get this thing done. Because they were going to join teams with somebody they would never walk with or eat with like Jesus. They really wanted to get this done. Destroy Jesus. That's what our table points to. That's what our table points to. That motive right there. That motive right there points to this table. That motive right there in this table points to the fruit of their efforts. They got their wish. They destroyed him. But in getting their wish, they didn't know how it was actually going to turn out, did they? By getting their wish, they actually purchased for us these three gifts. Forgiveness, joy, and rest. The very thing they didn't understand, the very thing they couldn't grasp, the very motive they had ended up when they got their success, purchased those things for us that are right in those stories today. And that's what this table shows us. This table shows us that those gifts are available to us today. Not by working extra hard, but by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Oh yes, when we believe, yes, turn me from myself towards how you want me to live. I want to love you. I want to obey you. But not to to sway you and control you and get favor with you, religion, but because I believe the gospel that you died for me. That's what this table shows us. So as our servers prepare and actually come forward to the front. I want us just to take another moment to think about that. The law and the gospel, religion and the gospel before we pass these elements. I want us to just think about that. Now we say this often here every time we pass these elements. And this is not to offend. But we say here that these elements don't make much sense because they represent his body and blood shed on the cross for you. These elements don't make much sense for you to take if you haven't trusted that. It's not an exclusion. It's just Jesus points when he says you take this, you're saying, I believe that. And I would want you to live in accordance to what you'd say you believe. And so if, the, if that's not your belief today, please let the elements pass. Nobody's going to be looking down the aisle to judge you. And in fact, if you're at a place today where you're feeling like, you know what? I got something that's just not right between me and the Lord. You too have the freedom to let him pass. Nobody's going to be judging you. I want you to hear that. But we do take this table seriously because God did a really seriously thing to make it possible. He died for us. So let's take a moment as the band begins to play as we um, just contemplate uh, what he has done before we serve the elements.